Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Highland Park Baptist Church. The preaching and teaching ministry of Highland Park is led by our pastor, Dr. Jeremy Wallace. Our desire is to help you grow in your faith so that you can better glorify God, make disciples, and love others. To learn more, visit us at hpbc.church. Now, here's this week's message. You may have heard of John Bunyan. John Bunyan is the author of a famous work known as Pilgrim's Progress. And if you haven't heard of John Bunyan, you've probably heard of Pilgrim's Progress. The book Pilgrim's Progress has been read more than any other book with the exception of the Bible. It's the number two most read book of all time. Pilgrim's Progress, the author of that, John Bunyan, has a backstory that most people may not be overly familiar with. John Bunyan was was someone who was a lot like us in that he just living his life, and he decided to read a couple books, and when he was reading these two books, he became convinced of his need of a Savior. In fact, the two books he read really showed him the reality of his sinfulness, and through reading those books, he gave his life to Christ, accepted Christ as his Savior. But because of his conversion, he was very passionate about helping other people also understand their need for Christ. And he was convinced that the call of God on his life specifically was to proclaim Christ, to share his faith, share his testimony, to to preach the good news. And so at the age of 30, that's exactly what he started doing. At the age of 30, he started preaching. The problem was for John Bunyan was that he did not have the license from the government that allowed him to preach. And so while he was out preaching, he was arrested and taken to prison and thrown in a jail cell. In fact, he sat in, the jail, in prison for three months before he finally had the opportunity to come and stand before the magistrate. And the magistrate of the area looked at him and said, I will give you a full pardon if you'll do one thing. And John Bunyan said, okay, well, what is that one thing? And the magistrate looked at him and said, I will give you a full pardon if you will no longer preach in the name of Jesus. Well, that was not something John Bunyan could do, and so he said no. And they took him and they threw him back in that jail cell for 12 more years. You know, many times if we were in that situation, I think we would crumble underneath that pressure, the persecution, the ridicule, the opposition. But that's not what John Bunyan did. In fact, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress while he was in prison. But that wasn't the only thing he could he did. He was convinced of God's call in his life to preach. And in his jail cell, there was a little window with bars in it. And when he would go up and he would stand at that window, he could see the outer wall of the prison. And he knew in his mind that on the other side of that outer wall of the prison was the the town marketplace where people would go to buy goods and buy everything that they would need. And so people were always walking by there. And so he decided, well, God's called me to preach and that calling on my life is not contingent upon a location. So every day he would go and he would stand at that little window in his jail cell and he would proclaim Christ. Not knowing if anyone was listening, not knowing if there was anybody on the other side of that wall, but every day for 12 years he would stand up, he would go to that window in that jail cell, and he would proclaim Christ. What he didn't know was that on the other side of the outer wall of the prison, every single day people would stop their shopping and they would stand there next to the prison wall and they would listen to what John Bunyan had to say. They couldn't couldn't see him, but they could hear him. 
Not only every day would people stand and listen to what he was saying, every day countless people would kneel beside the prison wall and give their life to Christ because of the message that he was proclaiming. He couldn't see them. He couldn't see the response. All he knew is that God had told him to do something. God had given him a mission, and nothing would deter him from that. I wonder how many of us, if we were in a similar situation, would respond the same way. I mean, think about it. If you were John Bunyan and you knew God had called you to do something and you start doing that, you're thrown in prison. You have to wait three months to simply go to trial. Then you go to trial and you're offered a full pardon to stop doing what you know God has called you to do. How would you respond? I mean, many people, I think, would kind of crumble under that pressure. Or even if you had the courage to stand up in the midst of that moment and say, you know what, I'm going to keep, I, I, I cannot not do what God's called me to do. I wonder how many of us for 12 years would stand at the window in a prison cell, proclaim Christ, not seeing if anyone was listening, not knowing if anyone was responding. See, the question we're answering, asking and answering this morning centers on that persecution, that opposition, that ridicule. How would you respond in persecution? Or perhaps the question should be, how should we respond to persecution, because what we're going to begin seeing, we saw it a little bit last week, and it's really going to, we're going to see it in the next few chapters, is it is possible for Christians doing what God has called them to do, to suffer persecution, to face opposition, and to have to endure ridicule. I mean, that's the reality of the culture. That's the reality of the society in which we live. How will we respond? Now, what we're looking at this morning is tied to everything else that we've looked at. So let me do a little bit of an overview again. If you remember in chapter 3 of Acts, Peter and John walked into the temple. They see a man who's been lame from birth, sitting there begging for money. And they look at him and they have no money to give him, but they do tell him that in the name of Jesus to stand up and walk. And if you remember in chapter 3, what does the man do? Stands up and walks. And not just walks, he goes about leaping. Well, he had been a fixture at the temple for years, and so everyone there knew him. Everyone there knew he had been lame from birth. And so as they see him up walking around leaping, thousands of people began to congregate around him wanting to know, how did this happen? I mean, has a miracle taken place? Have you been lying to us all these years? How did this happen? And as these crowds are coming around, Peter and John see a unique opportunity to present Christ, and so they do. And if you remember in chapter 3, 5,000 men accepted Christ, possibly 10 to 12,000 people total give their life to Christ. This concerns the temple leaders. Not only concerns them, it provokes them, the passage says. And so they come and they get Peter and John. They throw them in prison overnight. They bring them out the next morning, begin questioning them. And they want to know, how have you done this? And again, they are bold, right? They look at them and say, it's in the name of Jesus that this man has been healed. And they talk about the, the crucifixion of Christ. And they talk about the resurrection of Christ. They say, it is in his name that he has been healed. Well, the temple leaders don't like this. And so they threaten them not to preach anymore in the name of Christ. And if you were to look ahead in Acts chapter 5, chapter 6, you'll see that the persecution begins to ramp up a notch. Stephen is stoned to death. Saul is going from house to house, town to town, pulling Christians from their home. So this threat, this warning not to preach Christ is not an empty threat. But they have no way of punishing them right now, and so they release them. And this is where we pick up chapter 4, the passage that Pastor Jason read earlier. How would you respond? I mean, you've stood before the temple leaders. You've been 
urged not to preach in the name of Christ. You've been threatened, you've been warned, and now you're released. What would you do? Well, there's much we can learn about how we should respond to persecution in the next few verses, starting in verse 23. If you're taking notes on the back of your bulletin, let me give you number one. The first thing they did is they responded by pursuing fellowship. They responded by pursuing fellowship. Look with me again at verse 23. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. It says this. After they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. But notice that phrase, they went to their own people or they went to their own fellowship. Many times when we face ridicule, persecution, opposition, we are tempted to withdraw, to retreat. But the question is, why would they pursue fellowship? I mean, why would they run to their church family? Why would they run to their brothers and sisters in Christ? Why not simply withdraw and say, you know what, we've we got to lay low for a little bit. Why would they pursue fellowship? And I, I really think there's something they understood. That there is something about a church family, when the church family is being the church family, that encourages us, that strengthens us, that supports us. I mean, there is a support system that is intended to come through the local body of believers. See, I think Peter and John understood that the way you combat the psychological effects of facing persecution and ridicule and opposition is not by retreating and it is not by withdrawing. The way you do that, combat the psychological effects of that persecution, is by pursuing fellowship. See, the church should be the place where we come and we are encouraged, right? You come and you're encouraged, right? All right. We're strengthened. We're we're lifted up. I mean, this should be the place where we come and we feel that support. See, whenever you face persecution, opposition, ridicule, when you pursue fellowship at the exact same time, you are pursuing support and encouragement that you need to remain faithful. So the next time you're facing persecution, ridicule, opposition, pursue fellowship. Number two. Number two, they responded by praying. So verse 23, they go to their people, they go to their fellowship, they go to the church, tell them everything that's happened. Notice the response of the church in verse 24. When they heard this, they all raised their voices to God. Pause right there. They prayed. When they heard everything that was taking place, their response was to pray. That was their their knee-jerk reaction was to turn to God in prayer. You can actually read their prayer in verse 24 down through verse 30, but let me... highlight a few of the things that was contained in their prayer. Verse 24, they acknowledge God as being the creator of all things. Now, why is that important? When you're facing persecution, why, do, why is it important to acknowledge God as the creator? Well, when you acknowledge God as the creator, you also are acknowledging God as the ruler. If God is the creator of all things, including you, he is the ruler of all things, including you, which means he has the right to direct and allow things into our lives. The responsibility you and I have is to submit to the ruling of Christ. In verse 28, if you look there, you'll see that they acknowledge that God is in control of all things. In fact, look at verse 28 with me. They say that you are doing whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. Why does that matter? Well, when persecution comes, it is important for us to understand that God has not been caught off guard. When trials come into your life, God is not surprised. They did not sneak up on God. There is nothing that comes into your life, including persecution, that God was not aware of. 
I mean, the, the disciples are basically looking, saying, God, we know this persecution is in our life. We know we're facing this opposition. But God, we also know that you are not caught off guard. You know what is taking place. Verse 29, they asked God to give more boldness. They understood that speaking for Christ and pursuing the mission that God had given them requires boldness. In verse 30, you see that they ask God to work. Basically what they're saying is, God, we can't do it. Anything that is going to have an eternal significance and an eternal impact requires your hand, which is a great reminder for us. We can't do it. In our own strength, and our own wisdom, and in our own might, we cannot create something that has an eternal impact. We need God to work. How else did they respond? Number three, they responded with bold proclamation. At bold, with bold proclamation. So again, think about it. They respond by pursuing fellowship. They respond in prayer, which is basically them demonstrating a dependence on God. Now they respond with continued bold proclamation. Look at verse 31. I think this verse is amazing. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak God's message with boldness. Skip down to verse 33. And the apostles were giving testimony. They were speaking with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So they had this boldness. They prayed for boldness. And as God answers their prayer, they all continue to speak with boldness. Here's the point. When they faced persecution, it did not cause them to stop doing what they were doing. See, the temptation is when we face opposition, persecution, ridicule because of our faith, our temptation is to think, well, I must be doing something wrong. The reality is, Jesus said, you will face persecution because I faced persecution. Do not allow opposition to alter your course. I mean, over the past five weeks, we've been talking about the mission that God has given us as families and the mission that God has given us as a church. And many of you have committed to the mission. Here's what happens. Many people commit to the mission until they face opposition and then commitment disappears. What we see from Peter and John in the early church is they were committed to the mission. When persecution came, they pursued fellowship. They pursued responding in prayer. They depended on God. They relied on their church family. They prayed for boldness. And then they said, we will not be deterred. Meaning, we know that God has called us to this. We know this message must be spread. We know this mission must be accomplished. And when persecution comes and opposition, opposition comes, we won't stop. That's hard though, isn't it? I mean, it's very easy to allow ridicule to silence us. It is very easy to allow opposition to cause us to no longer pursue the mission. It is easy to allow persecution in our lives that is the direct result of our faith to cause us to say, you know what? It's not worth it. Peter and John understood, yes, it is. It is better to obey God than fear men. Let me give you number four. This is where I want to land for a few minutes. They responded with unity. <clears throat> they responded with unity. Look at verse 32. Now the large group of those who believed were of one heart and one mind. If you're in a habit of writing in your Bible, under, uh, underline that. The one heart, one mind, one heart, one soul. However it's worded in your Bible, under, underline that. Because that one heart, one mind signifies unity. See, in a way, verse 32 for through verse 37 is its own section, but in another way, it's really tied to everything that else that has been taking place. 
And what you see then in the following verses, really verse 34 through verse 37, is how that unity is played out. Did you remember what Jason read to us? Notice what he says in verse 32. Now, the large group of those who believed were of one heart, one mind, and no one said that any of his possessions was his own. But instead, they, ha- they held everything in common. And the apostles were giving testimony. Skip to verse 34. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to- for each person's basic needs. Sometimes people look at those verses and they say, well, this is just a form of communism or socialism. Well, they were not selling everything and putting everything in one pot and then distributing it evenly. That was not what was taking place. What they were doing was, if they had excess, if they had more than what was needed, as needs would arise in the church, they would come together, give to that need so that it could then be distributed. I find verse 30. Four to be pretty amazing. Look at the first phrase of verse 34. For there was not a needy person among them. Now, how many people are they talking about? Well, how many people have been saved so far in the book of Acts? Acts 2 was 3,000. Acts 3 was 5,000 men, probably up to 10 to 12,000. You put all this together, you're looking at a minimum of 15 to 20,000 people. Not one of them had a need. Because of the church. Isn't that an amazing statement? See, the picture in the book of Acts is a church family that loves and that cares and that is unified, and the unity that they share is manifested. Many churches, because of this passage, they have in their budget what is called benevolence, benevolence line. You know what they do with the benevolence line? They're benevolent. I mean, it's a line where it is designed to give to the needs of other people. In fact, there are people in our church who give above what they regularly give specifically to benevolence. I don't know who they are, but they give specifically to benevolence so the church is enabled to do more. That's the idea here. It's the idea, this wasn't mindless in that, oh, well, the church has a budget for it. They'll take care of it. This was a, we see a need, we need to meet this need. It was intentional, it was purposeful, it was sacrificial. See, the unity in the church was manifested in the church by meeting each other's needs. There was a genuine love and concern for everyone. That's rare. I experienced this once. I had a 96 or a 97 Ford Escort. It was my car. I mean, I had a spoiler and everything. I washed it every day. I poly- I mean, in my mind, this was this was it was the it's better than all your cars. It was nice. I'm at four cylinder would well, it really wouldn't do much. But anyway, <laughs> one day we were I was driving, and as I pushed the gas, the RPMs would go up, but it wouldn't go. It was like it was coasting. Well, the transmission had gone out. I've since learned that that was common in those vehicles. Because it happened to me four times, but that's another story in that same vehicle. Anyway, so get it fixed, and we're, everything's fine. Have a 12-month warranty. Dana and I are traveling to visit my grandparents one day up I-81 towards Virginia. And all of a sudden, the exact same thing happened again, and we have to coast off of the interstate. My parents have to come, and you know how long it had been since it had happened before? 14 months. 
just outside of the 12-month warranty. And that's the way it always works. So we're sitting there, and we have to leave it at a place, and no warranty, and I have no money. I'm in college. I'm doing an internship at a church. I got no money to pay for it. Parents can't help. We're just kind of thinking, what in the world are we going to do? I go to church the next Sunday, and they had heard of this, and one of the people in the church, still one of my best friends today, his name is Roy Seals, stands up and he says, listen, somebody in our church has a need and they have no way of meeting this need. And as a church family, we need to come together and we need to help provide for this need. It was going to cost $1,800 to fix the transmission. And I had no way of doing anything, nothing. In a matter of three minutes, they had $1,800 given to completely replace the transmission in the car. You know what I learned from that? One, I learned about my church family. They loved. They were unified. They cared. They, they contributed. Some of them sacrificed in order to help meet a need. You know what visitors who were there learned? The church is the church. The church is a family. The church is real. They love each other. It was a testimony. And see, I, I think a lot of us have the idea of saying, you know what, it would be great to have a church that contributes to my needs. Right? Doesn't that sound great? But in order to have a church that contributes to the needs that you may have, it requires your willingness to contribute to the needs that other people have. And it's not some accidental, oh, we're going to budget this, and if it, gets, if it happens, it happens. No, this has to be a focus. You say, why? Well, what we fail to understand oftentimes is that how we operate within the church has a direct impact on what we do outside of the church. So see, when we come together and we say, okay, God has given us a mission and we want to pursue that mission... In a commitment to pursuing the mission, we have to understand that the unity within the church and the love within the church and the care that is demonstrated within the church impacts how effective the mission is outside the church. See, we, we, we can't just sit back and say, okay, we want the mission to be done outside the church, but we don't care how we live inside the church. No, they're connected. Churches that are passionate about the mission, that are pursuing the mission, that are accomplishing the mission, at the exact same time are living as the church within the walls. See, if we ignore being the church inside the walls, we will never accomplish the mission outside the walls. They're connected. So um, if your mindset is, well, I want to support the mission being accomplished, but I don't care about the community and the family that we are, and the fellowship that we're to share together. I don't care about unity. I don't care about meeting each other's needs. I don't care about the needs that other people may have. Then the mission's never going to happen. Let me give you a couple clarifying points about this unity that we have to understand. Unity in a church is only real when it is visible. Please get this. Unity in a church is only real when it is visible. In the early church, it was visible because it changed their behavior. The unity caused them to do all they could to love each other and care for each other and sacrifice for each other. Unity that is visible is not real. Unity that cannot be demonstrated is not real. Unity that does not give to help others is not real. Talking about unity does not create unity. See, if we set back and we say, we're unified... 
but yet no one ever experiences that unity. No one ever sees that unity. None of us ever demonstrate that unity to other people. Then we are lying. Unity is only real in a church when it is demonstrated. I think a lot of us like the idea of unity, but are we demonstrating that unity? The way to know if unity is real in a church is to see it in action. Let me give you a second clarifying point. True unity leads to authentic community. True unity leads to authentic community. I mean, what you see happening in verse 32 through verse 37 is not church as an event, but church as life. Church as life. I mean, they were meeting each other's needs. They were contributing to each other's needs. You say, what does it mean to be authentic? You know, in our culture, in our society, we are trained to not be authentic. I mean, we... uh, come to church and we put the Bible under our arm and we smile as we're walking through the door and everybody asks how you're doing and what do we say? Fine. Liars. I mean, how many of you have ever come in and someone's asked you how you're doing and you've lied to them? Oh, come on, raise your hand. Yes, you have. See, that is a resistance to being authentic. See, part of the there's two sides to this. On one side, I think sometimes we ask people how they're doing when we really don't care. We ask people how they're doing because that's how you're supposed to greet people at church. Hey, good morning. How you doing? And we've already started walking off before we even heard. (laughs) But the other side of it is we have to be willing to be honest with our church family. There is nothing wrong when someone asks how you're doing to answer them with something other than fine. It is absolutely okay to look at someone and say, you know what, I've had a really hard week. It's been tough this week. It's okay to look at someone when they ask how you're doing and to respond, you know what, I have more questions and more doubts this week. Now you may catch them off guard. But a church that is unified is a church that is authentic, a church that pursues unity. And so what we have to do, an outworking of this unity, is a genuine concern for each other. In the early church, you know what church was to them? It was not just an event. It was not just a service that they attended. It was their life together. So I want to challenge you to start living this. I mean, ask people how they're doing, but... Before you do, be sure you actually care how they're doing. And when someone asks you how you're doing, this should be a place where you feel comfortable enough to come and to say, you know what, I'm struggling and know that there's going to be people here who can help and people here who love and people here who are concerned. And maybe what you need and maybe what they offer is prayer. But there may be needs that arise in our church family where it's not just prayer. There are needs that exist. And we hear about them all the time. I mean, I've been told of someone in our church who last time it rained, their roof was leaking and they're not sure how they're going to be able to get it fixed. And we have people occasionally that struggle with paying for their medication and people who from time to time may have a difficulty with their rent. You know what? This is not just something we say, well, I'll pray for you. 
I mean, doesn't John and James talk about this, that if you claim to have the love of Christ and you see your brother or sister in need and yet you close your heart of compassion towards them, the question is, how do you have a relationship with God? See, for our church to accomplish the mission that we've been talking about for the last five or six weeks, for us to accomplish the mission outside of the church, we have to live as the church inside. And for some of you, that means changing your mentality because this is counter-cultural. Our culture says, look out for number one and get all you can and accumulate all that you can and don't let anyone else kind of creep into that circle of trust and you guard against that. Scripture and what we see in the early church is it was the exact opposite. They were not, looked out, they were not looking out for number one, they were looking out for each other. And they were not trying to get all they could. They were selling and sacrificing so that they could be a blessing to other people. I mean, what we are called to do and what we are called to be as the church should stand out from the cultural norms. We are light in a dark world. We are salt. We should be different from the world around us, which requires some of us need to make decisions this morning that says, I will live as the church. Yes, I like the idea of unity, but I want to pursue it and I want to demonstrate it. See, one of the strongest ways we can further the mission of our church and we can have a shining testimony in the community is when we live as the Bible says we should live as a church. You see, when people come in and they see us loving each other and caring for each other and fellowshipping together and sacrificing to meet each other's needs, you know what they see? There's something different about these people. The gospel has actually changed them. They are not who they used to be. They long to be in a community like that. But listen, as long as we view church as an event or church as a service we attend, we will never pursue the authentic community that God has designed us to enjoy. And when we fail to be unified and to demonstrate unity, the mission is not accomplished. And so this morning, some of us, we need to change how we think, and we got to change how we live. I mean, for some of you, this unity that we are talking about is it's a great idea. But you've not experienced it, and you've not demonstrated it, and so it's really not real. I mean, some of you this morning, God has blessed you, and you need to be more open to helping others. There are needs. Are you willing to help? I mean, that's the church. We need boldness. We need compassion. We need love. But listen, this is not something we can manufacture. This is something that is the result of Christ. And so this morning, however God is speaking to you, I want to encourage you to respond. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you have any questions or want to know more about having a closer relationship with Jesus Christ, please contact us online at hpbc.church. Please join us again next week as together we seek to know Christ and make Him known.